on ABC Radio. You're with Michael Pavlich. It may surprise you to know, and I couldn't believe this when I was told this today, that there are more statues in Australia of animals than there are of women. Isn't that unbelievable? So it is the case, more statues of dogs and horses and everything else, but, but not of women. And one such woman who didn't have a statue until recently, and one has been arranged for, is Louisa Lawson, who is not just Henry Lawson's mum, but she's also known as the mother or the grandmother of suffragette or suffrage in this country. And she's, her story is quite incredible, so we thought we'd have a bit of a chat about it this morning. Uh, Bernard Get, Bernadette Eichner is a businesswoman, marketing communications coordinator for a group who raised funds and erected a statue uh, dedicated to Willisa Lawson in the town of Mudgee, and that happened earlier this year. So we thought we'd have a bit of a chat to her this morning and pay, as I said, a bit of respect, a bit of tribute to the life of Louisa Lawson. Good morning, Bernadette. Good morning, Pav. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Thanks for joining us. <clears throat> You're welcome. It's very early in the morning for me, so... Um uh, hopefully my voice doesn't come across as too croaky and sleep-deprived. For someone who's had such a major contribution to the history of this country, does it, does it surprise you or it surprises me that there isn't already a statue for her? I know, um, and I think that's what um, got everyone up here um, a bit interested. This was a Rotary Club of Mudgee project, so it was a COVID project, really. Um, the president of the local committee was reading an article in The Independent, which was written by Dr Leslie Hughes, who's one of our leading climate change scientists in Australia, and she has always had a passion for Louisa and wrote a great article. And, of course, Louisa was born here in the region and um, not many people knew much about it. There's a lot of tributes to Henry around this region, um, but nothing for her so he was, uh, his interest was piqued and then I got involved because it sort of looped me in as well, given um, my own sort of passions. Um, but then we realised that there is nothing. Uh, mm. there, there is a, a small tribute to her in a park in Marrickville. There is a street named after her in Canberra. But other than that, there is really no memorial to um, her achievements, which were significant in terms of rights for women and certainly safety for women and children. Yeah, look, we'll go through her life in just a second, but, I mean, I imagine around Australia there are lots of cases of this. Uh, amazing women in areas um, or amazing women that have done incredible things historically for this country but certainly not recognised um, by the amount of tributes and the amount of statues and different mm. plaques around the country. There's lots to men, lots to horses, lots to animals, but now when I think about it, there are actually very few to some of our women pioneers. Well, less than 3%, um, as you mentioned in the intro, less than 3% of statues in Australia are of women. And it would be fair to say that women made uh, a significant contribution to, to this country. But, for, you know, it was a sign of the times, really. Um, and, and one of the saddest things, I think, and I've poked around a few cemeteries around the country in my time, and what, you've, what you notice in cemeteries, that women don't even have their own name. Like they, will, they will be Mrs John Smith. So here lies Mrs. John Smith, and we never even know who that woman was. Hmm. We just know that she was married to John Smith. So it's no surprise that there's no statues to women's achievements or no recognition of women's achievements during this time. 
Um, and hopefully, you know, um, our little project, I know, had a lot of interest nationally. Yep. And hopefully our little project will change that. I believe there's a few commissions around the country at the moment um, for statues of women, so that's an encouraging sign. Look, I could think of a handful of women straight off the top of my head who deserve a statue that probably don't already yeah. have one. So 3%, that's unbelievable. Uh, yeah. I think good on you for redressing that and to, you know, holding it up for the women who should be uh, recognised in many ways. But, look, we'll focus on Louisa because it's an incredible <laughs> story. I mean, she mm. was born Louisa Albury. As you said, she was born uh, in, near Mudgee. Um, which, and I've given her her original name there because she picked up the Lawson when she married Henry Lawson's father, uh, who wasn't a Lawson to start with. He was a Larson or something, wasn't they? changed their name. Yes. So Louisa, um, you know, she, she was the second of what would go on to be 12 children to her parents, to Henry and Harriet Aubrey. Um but she, And she was a really curious child. So interestingly, her mother had a great um, commitment to her children being able to read and write. So she was very focused on their education. And so Louisa, at a very early age, showed promise as a writer. She had a very curious mind, was um, uh, sort of described by her teachers at various times as being precocious, as being outspoken, um, as sort of, you know, being a little bit difficult in the classroom because she asked so many questions. But she showed signs of learning. So... When she got to 13, she was actually invited to stay on as a trainee teacher, which was really unusual for girls in that era. But her mother, interestingly enough, said, well, no, I need her back here to help with all these other children. So even though her mum was really focused on education, it was almost, um, oh, well, I mean, you wouldn't use the word abusive, but it was, it was so sad that at the age of 13, mm. she was reefed away from that. So then she met Niels Larson. So her dad, uh, who was a teetotaler, Methodist teetotaler, abhorred alcohol, but saw opportunities in the gold rush to open a shanty pub, uh, one of many um, in the area at the time during the, the gold rush era. And, in, and, of course, Louisa, all the kids worked in the pub, cleaning and serving meals. And she met Niels Larson, who swept her off her feet. He was... 10 years older than she was. He was Norwegian, well-travelled, spoke seven languages, uh, talked about really interesting things, bit of a philosopher. And she was completely swept off her feet at 18 and saw a world um, that was completely foreign to the one in which she lived. And so she she married him. Um, turns out he was more style than substance uh, because he, he was chasing the gold. So, um, you know, he was a bit of a dreamer and a drifter in the end. But they, they um, went off to Grenfell to join the gold rush there, uh, and that's where Henry was, was born. And it was when Henry was born that they changed their name to Lawson. Um, and, you know, local folklore has it that the matron at the hospital said, oh, we, you can't write that name down, no-one will know who he is. And so it was at that point that he changed his name to Peter Lawson, and that's how Henry got the name Lawson. There you go. And now, so she's met, she's hooked up with uh, with her new, with her husband there. As you said, she was sort mm. of besotted, and he didn't turn out to be the dreamboat that she thought he was. He's, no, so yeah. he's gone off and basically started looking for gold on his own. She's left uh, Louisa with all the kids. And yes, so they yes, so they came back to this area after Henry was born, 
because, again, uh, there was another gold strike here and so they rushed back. And um, the other children were then um, born here. But, of course, they just had a little scrubby block and, and the area known as Urundari here, which is now the, the home of some of the most iconic wineries around Muchi, was where she lived. And they had this little two-acre scrubby block which, you know, she had to eke out a living on. But he was off, you know, and wasn't sending money. So then um, there was an opportunity to buy a little post office general store, which is actually still here today and is now privately owned and is a guest house. Hmm. But um, so she thought, well, you know, I'll run that and bring some money in to try and raise these kids. But again, in those days, she couldn't own a business in her own right. Um, being a woman and being a married woman was even more disadvantageous. So the post office, it was always thought that he owned and operated the post office, but it was her and it was just in his name. Right. So um, she I mean, opened just that. Even, even to be able to do that took some initiative, I'd imagine. How does a you know, I mean, basically she's come from really poor background. Somehow she's put together the pennies to be able to purchase this business and also do it in, in a way that, you know, sort of made her the the front centre, the business proprietor, and even though it was in the husband's name. I mean, there's a bit of sort of manoeuvring, I would have thought, to actually just that, that oh. initial <clears throat> buying the business. The most extraordinary woman, um, resourceful, intelligent, resilient, resourceful, and just wouldn't give up. So, you know, every day was um, designed to work out how she could make a life for her children, hmm. um, which which actually set her off on her first experience of lobbying state government was she lobbied for a local school because she couldn't get her kids... I mean, she was totally committed to education, which is why the, the statue, um, which was created by a leading artist who happens to live here in Mudgee, Margot Stevens... So the statue uh, actually has Louisa sitting, I don't know if you've seen photographs of it, but she's sitting on a pile of books. And that's a, a, a nod to her commitment to education. And that's something that drove her her whole life. So she lobbied for a school to be um, opened at Yurundari so her children could get to school because she couldn't get them in to Mudgee in the horse and trap mm -hmm. every day and then get back in time to open the post office. So, I mean, you're starting to see... Um, you know, the beginnings of life for modern women is juggling family and home. Um, she was successful, so a school was opened and um, a teacher was sent up here and, of course, uh, Henry was the first student to be enrolled at that school. Hmm. What a great mm. story. Look, uh, we'll take a call from Crowd. If you want to join the conversation, one three hundred eight hundred triple two. if you've got anything you would like to say about Louisa Lawson or any questions you wanted to ask. Uh, good morning, Grant. Hi, Pav. Just to—I have got a question for Bernadette in the second, specifically about Mrs. Lawson. But just to, to also comment on you, when uh, you were talking about the statutes and, and women and the lack of representation, I'm not sure whether they've actually changed it fully. They've changed it now, but I think um, I guess it's called the Longboard in Wimbledon when it comes for the female winners of the you know the women's final. Um, I think back, and I don't think that they've actually changed. The, they might have the modern women with their their name. But I think if you go to, I think it's 79 or 80, the winner was, uh, it's not uh, Chris Everett, it's Mrs. Chris, uh, whatever, Lloyd. And so, and that's how they used to do it. And I think there have been representations to try and change that bit. 
And from what I know, from what I can remember, they've actually still refusing to, to this day to change it to put their their maiden name and what, but they, it was their husband's name, which is okay. It's all right for Chris Everett Lloyd because her husband was a tennis player, but I think it still applies for some of the other players. So that was that was just in passing. And specifically on um, uh, Lawson's mum, just Bernadette. Do you know? I was just reading in the um, Australian Dictionary biography. I'm like you, Pav. I'm just astounded. Of what she's achieved and everything, and mm. you just you just don't know. Apparently, in 1952, there's a over in North Bondi, um, there's a public housing uh, building that's commemorated to her rather than the son. There's plenty of other stuff, and I just don't know whether Bernadette knows whether the building's still there and whether it still carries her name. And I was just curious whether she knows about that. Yeah, or... I'd be interested to know Bernadette as well. As there's <laughs> also in Sydney, there's a small park, isn't there, that's named after mm. her? Mm. Is that building in Bondi still there? I don't know whether the building is still there. Um, I know it was social housing, which was completely, you know, right up Louisa's street. Um, I am aware that it's no longer social housing, but I'm not sure whether the building still carries her name, Grant. I'm going to look that up. Actually, no, and whereabouts is the, in the park in Sydney? I, I'm in I'm in public housing. We we yes, we still call it public housing, and but yes, there is the thing about social housing. Um, but yeah, but do you know where the park is in in Sydney that's named after it? Um, so it's in it's in Marrickville. So the park is actually the the entire park isn't named after her. There's a section in the park which is a tribute to her, and it's actually a little. Um, just a very small little amphitheatre-style um, design, but it's beautifully tiled, and it's tiled in the logo of the Dawn magazine, which is what Louisa moved to Sydney and formed, which was the beginning of the suffragette movement. Yeah. Um, so, and but an interesting story about that. I um, uh, have a friend up here who works for the local radio station, and she got absolutely swept up in the Louisa story when we started promoting it and she was a great supporter of ours when we were fundraising for the statue. But she's gone on to produce a podcast which is called, um, you know, Louisa, More Than a Mother, which is now actually in the Radio Today, is a finalist in the Radio Today Podcast Awards. So, you know, Louisa's legacy lives on. But she was recently in Sydney um, and went to the park to pay tribute to Louisa and in the same park is a statue of a returned World War One soldier, who I'm sure has every right to have a statue. But what was really heartbreaking is that the council has maintained the area around that statue and has a beautiful um, mode walkway up to the statue so people can go and pay tribute. And Louise's part of the park has been left to just be overgrown to weeds, really. That's, that's so that horrible. was pretty sad to hear. I mm. think the people, uh, the, the council responsible for in the Marrickville area need to get a look at that. It's outrageous. Yeah. Uh, and there's a ceramic mural there as well, you're saying? Yeah, so it's um, – and it's really beautiful. So the, the Dawn, the logo for the Dawn was um, quite an evocative logo. So it's been um, sort of recreated in this beautiful mosaic tile. Mm. Look, we, so anyway, we've got to. She was in a general store. She's still in the yeah. area of Mudgee, but she eventually moved on, moved up in the world, and moved to Sydney. I suppose was well, forced to move to Sydney, really. Well, she didn't sort of move up in the world. She was uh, bereft. She lost a baby, a young child. So she had twins. Twin girls were the last two of her children, and one of those girls died. And we think it was gastro. But these kids would have been reasonably malnourished. Um, it was a tough life. 
and um, it broke her, as it does so many families and so many women particularly. And that's when she really started writing for herself. And one of her first poems that that was ever published, and she actually got paid for it, um, was a poem to Nettie, her daughter, who had passed on. So there was a couple of things that that happened. Um, One was that she invented, and I have to tell this story because it's, if you think back to Christine Holgate not so long ago in the Australia Post debacle, um, Louisa actually invented a buckle which was put onto post bags. So when the post used to come up from Sydney on the train, it would be in Hessian sacks on the most part. Um, it would be dumped uh, outside the post office, quite often got damaged by rain. Long story, she thought this is untenable. Um, was just They were just tied off with twine. So she developed that had a buckle on it and had one of those made up. She was smart enough to patent this design, Pat. Hmm. This is what is amazing about this woman. She was smart enough to patent that design. Anyway, she trialled it. It worked brilliantly. It kept the mail dry. It stopped it from blowing away in the wind. Um, she then took it to what was what's now Australia Post, which is the National Postal Service of the Commonwealth, Commonwealth Postal Service, um, which was all men. And they said, oh, this this looks good. We'll give this a go. So she thought this is great. They trialled it. They adopted it and um, announced it as a, an invention of one of their senior management, oh, male senior managers. Yeah. So she actually took them to court. Um, so after she got to Sydney, she took them to court and she was the first woman to take a man to court. And it went all the way to the Supreme Court of New South <laughs> Wales. Interestingly enough, she won because in the rule of law, um, the judge ruled in her favour and Australia Post, uh, well, the National Postal Service was then ordered to uh, change the narrative about the, the source of the um, <laughs> the satchel and to pay her royalties. But, of course, they never did and the law never chased them for it. And in the end, you know, that was just another thing that broke her spirit, really, is it was expensive. It was tiring. Yeah. Um, she was ridiculed. Mm. Despite it's, it's it's an incredible story because there is all this tragedy underpinning it, and in many ways, mm. right up until the end of her life, there was this sort of tragedy in the background. But through it all, she persisted and incredible effort. So look, we so she moved to Sydney, as you said. Now she's, yeah. she's started off with a little publication that her and Henry made in their cottage there, and only printed a couple of. Uh, editions of it, and then she went on to acquire the, as you say, or to start up this this publication called The Dawn, uh, which was mm. a much more f- influential publication, and it got distributed all over the world. And to, to this day, it's um, a remarkable achievement of someone who was basically going up against the bulletin and all the male publication, male-dominated publications of the time, and giving it to them as as much as they were giving it to her. So an incredible effort, really, just to start the thing up, let alone to, to man it and publish it for 17 years. Well, and the story gets better there because she was totally committed. So by this stage, she'd, she'd had enough. I mean, uh, one of the really saddest things um, that I've heard about Louisa, and we had somebody here locally um, say it to me, uh, was that why should we be celebrating a woman who abandoned her husband and raised a drunk? So that person <laughs> has no idea of social psychology for a start. But um, by the time she left Mudgee, um, I mean, her marriage had been over for ages. He was never home. 
Um, you know, he never sent money. She was living the life of a single mother who had lost one of those children, you know, all of this. So it was tragedy. And I think something in her snapped. It's like the women's movement now. And I always say to people that women around the world are getting angry and everyone needs to be really careful (laughs) about that because, you know, when that power rises, there there will be a lot lot of change. And she was the beginning of that. This was driven out of a desire to devote the rest of her life to change, to change circumstances for women. So the dawn came out of the Republican. She bought the Republican as a vehicle for Henry, really. She was the first person to publish Henry's work. So without Louisa, we wouldn't have had Henry's work published. And then she, within a year, she decided to turn it into the dawn which was a, a newspaper for women. So it was written by women, edited by women, published by women, distributed by women. And it was the first of its kind. And it's still the longest um, continuously running publication of its kind in Australian history. I mean, even the Woman's Weekly has done pretty well, but that moved from a weekly publication to a monthly one and, and so on. But in the face of enormous opposition, so, um, yeah, this the is the, Australian, the, the male text union weren't too happy oh, about the women typesetters coming no. in. No, you know, the good old typographical association, which was a male only union, um, weren't very happy about this at all. So, they, they staked out the dawn. It was in Phillips Street, so it was located in Phillips Street in Sydney. Had a big old sort of printing, um, warehouse at the back where all the printing was done and everything. They stalked the women. Uh, they um, threatened the women's children. They, uh, these women were not safe going home from work. Mm. They were assaulted. Uh, their children were assaulted. Uh, it was really full on and a really dark period in the publishing history of this country. So instead of caving in, she just said, fine, you can all come and live here. Bring your children and come and live here and live on the premises. So, you know, that was Australia's first family violence, domestic violence shelter, really. Um, <laughs> she, so she, a remarkable, she did. remarkable story. <laughs> she just took them all on and she won. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I need to bring up something here, which is a bit of a, I mean, about her relationship with Henry. And I know she was very supportive of him, but mm. there, there must have been mm. a point there when his behaviour really went up against her feminist credentials and her feminist beliefs because he was an alcoholic, you know, he was a bit of a troubled man, Henry Lawson, obviously a great poet and great writer. But he was also, there was a stage there where he was taken to court and accused of uh, violence within his own marriage. I imagine that would have been troubling for, for her to sort of come to terms with that. Look, I think, um, <clears throat> you know, her relationship with Henry was a great sadness in her life, but I think it's a very complex relationship. And um, uh, I'm, I'm trained as a psychologist, so um, a lot of the work I do is, a, is around, um, you know, people's interactions with each other. And so, look, it's a really tricky one, Pav, because Henry um, was hard of hearing and there's some suggestion that he uh, had an um, ear infection as a child as a result of poverty mm-hmm. and that that sent him partially deaf. So um, there, there is some suggestion that he was a young boy who couldn't hear properly, had a love of learning, was probably getting into trouble at school. So like most kids who have any disability at all, they will act that out So because they don't know how to articulate it. So, look, he probably grew up 
um, in a difficult situation where he was probably in trouble. A lot of the time for his behaviour, because it would have just been punished, no one would have been interested to understand why he was a bit angry as a child. But, you know, look, you know, she may not have been, um, you know, the best in inverted commas mother either. Like I love Louisa to death and she would be the first person I would have at a dinner party if I could recall anybody. But, you know, life was hard and she was trying to raise these kids. She was running shitty cattle. She was trying to run a business. So, you know, life at home may not have been that easy for Henry either being the eldest. So I think it's a very complex relationship. I think there was a lot of sadness on both parts about how it went. Um, And, you know, we all know that alcohol can cause enormous problems for a lot of people and it's beyond their control. So I have enormous compassion for both of them in this situation. So, yeah, I just think it was a really sad situation. Sad for both of them. Yeah, look, and, you know, Henry, obviously well-regarded and popular at the time as well, but wasn't exactly rolling in the cash. He's, he wasn't uh, bringing a lot of money into the, the uh, Lawson household to his mum, I would have thought. Uh, now, we'll just move on a little bit because we need to probably talk about how things ended up. After 17 years, she wound up the publication of The Dawn. And again, you know, this sort of tragedy was, was hanging over her and she she died an unhappy and a, an impoverished woman. Yeah, she did. She had a fall off a um, off a tram at Circular Quay and um, really hurt her back. So again, um, in those days, it's, uh, you know, we're talking about the, um, the early 19, 1900s, um, sort of in the 1920s. So the medical services available to her would have been limited and the the knowledge at the time of these sorts of injuries was pretty limited. So she had chronic pain. And for a woman who was so fierce and independent um, and believed in the freedom of movement, to have that taken away from her was really damaging. Then we sort of add in, you know, the effects of menopause and all of these things. Ultimately, she had what we would now call a nervous breakdown and was sent to, um, you know, good old Roselle, to Gladesville Hospital for the Insane, where she was treated there um, as uh, for insanity, really. So, and she died there. Um, Charles, her uh, other son, and, and um, she had another son, Peter, you know, they sort of visited her and, and Charles really looked after her and looked after her affairs in the end. But she had quite a sad end, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. it's really sad that uh, someone who could have such a huge influence on Australian history, you know, that she wasn't, she never knew what what sort of piece she had in the puzzle, what piece she would play, or the role that she had played. Obviously, mm. you know, um, she she knew Henry had been successful, but her role in advancing the role of suffragettes and the role of uh, women's rights can't be understated. And you know, we're talking about the time when actually women did start getting the vote, and her. Her position in that in Australia, um, yeah, like I said, can't be understated. Not only in Australia, but she was hugely influential around the world too. So it wasn't just in Australia. Oh, that, that she... yes. And the Dawn was an international publication, so she had subscribers from, particularly from America and the UK, um, because it was published in English. But there were subscribers all across the world, 
And she was quite um, respected in the suffragette movements in both of those countries as well. Yes. Um, we've, got to, yeah. we've got to wind it up because the news is coming up, Bernadette. I just wanted to say thank you because for organising it, for crowdfunding, getting enough money to build a statue in Mudgee. Uh, if people are interested in looking at it, where is it? It's in Market Street in the Mudgee CBD, so outside the library. We thought that was a fitting place for Louisa. Yeah. She's beautifully positioned right in the main street um, outside the library. Um, and she's a beautiful piece of work created by Margot Stevens. Well if done. anyone wants to look up Margot. Well done, Bernadette. Look, it's fantastic. $120,000 they had to crowdfund to get that statue built. So well done on behalf of the rest of us, Bernadette. You've done a wonderful thing there for Australian history. Good to talk to you this morning. 